Let me read our text with and for us this morning. I'll begin at 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and go through 12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, our world, you would agree, screams for tolerance. But when you really think about it, the need of the hour is for truth. And sometimes speaking truth in a tolerant world can, for some, come at a great price. A few years ago, maybe right after 9-11, Franklin Graham made some comments on an NBC interview that were not received well by the politically or religiously correct constituency. NBC quoted Franklin Graham as having said at a speaking engagement, quote, we're not attacking Islam, but Islam has attacked us. The God of Islam is not the same God. He's not the son of God of the Christian or Judeo-Christian faith. It is a different God, and I believe it is very evil and a wicked religion, end of quote. And NBC gave Graham the chance to retract those words and was shocked that he did not. The Associated Press was also shocked, reporting that Franklin Graham's words and views run counter to those expressed weeks after 9-11 by President Bush, who called Islam, quote, a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world, end of quote. The Associated Press also stated that Graham's views stand in contrast to the message delivered by his father, Billy, uh, quoting him on September 14th at the National Cathedral. Billy Graham said, quote, We come together today to affirm our conviction that God cares for us, whatever our ethnic, ethnic, religious, or political background may be, end of quote. I mean, what's amazing in such a tolerant culture, is that it's okay to evidently be intolerant of Christians and their faith. I mean, do you find it interesting that those who claim to spread religious tolerance today are often the most vocal against Christianity? We might ask the question, why do we find ourselves in the lion's den against the proponents of religious tolerance? And the answer, I think, is simple. It's simply the message of the gospel itself. And I am not saying that anyone who does not embrace Jesus should not be tolerated. We cannot and must not dictate what people must believe. People, as we know, are free to worship under the law. But what I am saying is this, is that religious tolerance does not mean that all ways to heaven 
are equal. In fact, religious tolerance today means that you are not allowed to say that your way is the only way and that the other way is wrong. I mean, if Franklin Graham says that Muslims are wrong, he is labeled right there as a fundamentalist and a religious bigot. In fact, a few months ago, I, I told you about watching the memorial service for the victims on 9-11 in the stadium in New York. That was the one that Oprah had hosted. And it was really, when you think of that funeral, as pluralistic as it could be. There were priests there on the platform. There were rabbis There were Protestant ministers from mainline denominations. There were Muslims. There were Hindus, each of a different religion. Each had their own clerics, their own preachers, their own teachers, their own priests, their own mullahs that would step up to the microphone and speak. But the thing that really caught my eye was not what the other people said. It's what the Protestant minister said who read from Romans 8, and it might be that it's not what he said, it might be what he left out. You remember that on that occasion in Romans 8, he read, what a great passage, who will separate us from the love of Christ, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, but in all these things, Paul said, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, and I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. And then in an uncanny way, he stopped right there. Probably went by most people and I kind of thought, hey, what about the rest? But he stopped right there that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And maybe he was under a time constraint, and maybe I could not or we cannot judge his motive, but he left out the next line, and you might know without looking at it in Romans 8, that we'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in what? Christ Jesus, our Lord. He left out the name Christ Jesus. The question could be asked, now why would he do that? We don't exactly know, but it could very well be that the Protestant minister capitulated the truth at the expense of acceptance. He sacrificed potentially truth on the altar of tolerance. And I would say to you, Grace Church, that as the pressure for religious pluralism gives way to religious tolerance, The claims of Christ are now just one of the many options to heaven. Just don't be that dogmatic, seems to be the thought. Maybe some of you, as I watched this week and the video, did you see that? Of the Rutgers University men's basketball coach. He was fired this week for footage. It was quite graphic if you've ever grown up in athletics at all, but What he displayed at his practice was heaving, chucking, if you will, basketballs at players' heads, at players' legs, grabbing them, physically moving them. And then in the process of this, bleeping out all the foul and vulgar language that would spew forth from his mouth. And even at that point on this video footage, I don't know if somebody was up in the rafters of Rutgers taking this video, then he 
threw out racial slurs against the homosexual community. It was quite graphic. I mean, if you'd see it, you, you just would think, wow. And so when that came out, I believe it was on Tuesday, very quickly at that point, once that became viral, he was fired. Now, for me, I just listened, you know, as, you, as I drive from Reedley into the office, about all the talk shows, and the nation was outraged by his actions. I mean, calling for his firing, calling for that's ridiculous, claiming that that can't be committed. The day after that, the athletic director resigned, and I suppose I say it right here in my notes, he was fired, the athletic director resigned, maybe I would say, and rightfully so. But what's interesting to me is how come our nation overlooks the innocent slaughter of children and nobody says anything? That's what I wonder. I mean, you know, if a guy's going to chuck basketballs, okay, yeah, he's out of control as a coach. Send him to anger management. I get it. But nobody says anything that in the next 15 seconds that I speak, a child will be aborted. Something's wrong with our nation. A friend of mine, who I'll leave his name out, (laughs) because he's a very high-ranking government representative. In fact, I used to take my kids when I'd go spend some time with them, and they wondered what the guy was who was sitting with us in the conversation, either at the conversation or at the next table or at the door. I said, that's his bodyguard. And they said, you're joking, Dad. I said, I, I only speak the truth. You know, I said, that's his, that's his bodyguard. But my friend loves Christ, and he was invited to speak of his faith at a religious event. It was a prayer breakfast, okay? And he got this letter from a reporter after the event in which he spoke, and he was asked to speak at a religious prayer breakfast. Here's what the reporter said. He said, what bothered me most, quote, was your remark that you felt you had to take every occasion you could, including the ecumenical prayer breakfast, to let people know that they should accept Jesus as their Savior because it might be one of the few times people have to save themselves and achieve eternal salvation. Forgive me, this reporter said, but I do not think anyone at that prayer breakfast was without his own faith. And those of faiths differing from yours probably did not wish to be accosted by you with you pushing your own doctrine upon them. He went on to say, I feel you should restrain the expression of your personal religious beliefs at public occasions. And don't worry, he said, I think we'll all get to heaven one way or another under our own particular faiths. End of quote. That's just about where we live. Express, he said, you're strained the expression of your own personal religious beliefs at public occasions. Is that what we're coming to? Is that what's at stake here? But believe me, if the Rutgers basketball coach did that, our nation ought to be outraged. Listen, we ought to be outraged at other things. Certainly, we understand him being removed from office. But I think, listen, we've got to love the truth. You at Grace Church need to be willing to die for the truth. And I don't think I'm being over the top here. You have no idea what will happen in 10 years. You have no idea the world in which we might be living in a few years as we think of even the definitions of marriage. 
So as we turn our heart now to 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John's going to say something entirely different than the reporter. The Apostle John is going to say that it's critical to have a right Christology. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1 to set the context. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Verse 5, who is the one that overcomes the world except the one who believes, here it is, that Jesus is the Christ. Now this is not new to John. If you just glance back at chapter 2 for one moment, look back there at chapter 2 and verse 22. John there said, who is a liar? I mean, this is just straightforward. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If you deny that Jesus, his humanity, his name, is the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, then you are a liar. This is, in 2.22, John says, the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. It couldn't be any clearer. No one, verse 23, who denies the Son has the Father. Now, I can interpret that for you, and you can see that if you deny Jesus Christ, you have no relationship with God. Period. That doesn't sound very um, religiously acceptable in some cases, but that's what the Bible says. No one who denies the Son who has the Father, verse 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this is the teaching of the Word of God. Look over at chapter 4 in verse 2. He says there, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So John's theology here, his Christology is, you've got to get it right. Now, having placed our faith in Christ in chapter 5 and 1 through 5, John is desirous here of building the assurance of that faith. And he builds that assurance by way of a testimony. Now, that word testimony is used here in our little section in 6 through 12. Actually, just in three verses, it's used six times. And so what we have here is the testimony of God regarding Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and that testimony forms the basis of our assurance. I mean, I really believe that this passage provides the greatest testimony ever pinned in the Scripture regarding God's own testimony of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I say the greatest because it goes beyond any human testimony regarding his son because it is the very testimony of God himself regarding his son. And he states here in 6 through 12 this threefold testimony and it has divine origin. God's very own authority rests on the truth of his son. Now certainly in Jewish jurisprudence, the testimony of two or three witnesses back in the Old Testament, was sufficient as truth. But the question John will ask you is, how much greater than the testimony that God offers, the divine witness, if you will, the three divine witnesses, to prove his case regarding his son? 
And clearly, as you'll see, these testimonies, that there's three of them, demand a response from you. Now, we looked at the first two testimonies a couple weeks ago. Just let me touch on those. First, there's the testimony of history. The testimony of history. These bear witness as to, as to the person of Christ. Verse 6, speaking at the end of verse 5 that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, we went into that two weeks ago. We said the best way to see that phrase is to see the water as a reference to his water baptism and his blood as a reference to his death. The water baptism is where his public ministry was inaugurated and where, do you remember, he was declared to be the Son of God and he was commissioned and he was empowered for service. And he came, John says in verse 6, by water and blood. And we said that the blood here is an obvious reference to his death for our sins. So water baptism then not only inaugurated the beginning of his ministry, but more than just that, it was the divine witness to his identity. Remember there that the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And as the Spirit of God descended on him in Matthew 3, a voice of God was heard affirming that this indeed was his beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. So as you place your faith in Christ, you have the testimony of history that this very one that you're placing your faith in is the one who came by water at his baptism, but it was the witness, if you will. It was the divine witness, the voice that came out that affirmed that this was his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And then he came by water, verse 6, and secondly there, I'm still under that first sub-point of the testimony of history, he came at, at his death. His death, his blood was the miraculous testimony of God. You say, well, how was his death, how was his blood the miraculous testimony of God? Well, we cited a few things from the supernatural darkness that fell on the land in Matthew 27. We cited that the veil in the temple was torn top, right? To top to bottom. In other words, that was miraculous. The earth shook when he died. The rocks split. The grave tombs, if you will, were opened. And so John says, this one that you've placed your faith in came by water and the blood. But look back at the text in verse 6. John wants to be clear, in, in, in light of this Gnostic heresy, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. So in contrast to Gnostic teaching, Jesus not only experienced water baptism, but also death on the cross. And I think what John's exposing here is that the very one who was crucified, died with his blood, was the same person who was baptized in the Jordan River. That for John, he is the God-man. That he is fully man, and as such, he was given divine testimony by the voice and by his death, and they speak of the, of the faith that we've placed our faith in Christ in. Secondly, not only the testimony in history, but the testimony of the Spirit. Look again, and again, we touched on this last two weeks ago. It says in verse 6, And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And so the Holy Spirit is a third testimony to us 
regarding the Son. You say, well, how did the Spirit testify? Well, we looked at that in Matthew 3 again, that Jesus was baptized and immediately as he went up from the water, behold, remember it says the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. He saw that testimony. He saw the Spirit of God coming. He heard that voice to John the Baptist that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit then also at our Lord's baptism was witness to his deity in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. In fact, look what John says in verse 7. He said, for there are three that testify. You say, what are the three? Well, obviously, it's the water. It's the blood, but not the water only. The water and the blood. And then thirdly, it's the Spirit. He says there are three that testify. Look at verse 8. The Spirit, he answers it, and the water and the blood, these three agree. The factual evidence, Grace Church of the Valley, of Jesus' baptism water His death blood is in complete agreement with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's testimony, along with the testimony of the water and the blood, have but one purpose, to unequivocally declare that the historical man, Jesus, is in fact the divine Son of God, the only Savior and King, and that he alone can bring eternal life. So as you have placed your faith in Christ, here's the very testimony. It's the testimony of history. Jesus is the one who came, and it looks back, and it looks back at his baptism, and it looks back at his death. Those form the testimony of history. Then secondly, there's the testimony of the Spirit at his baptism, confirming that this indeed is the Son of God. And then thirdly, for our time this morning, the third testimony is the testimony of God. The testimony of God. Okay, and it's there in verse 9. Let me read it to you. It says, if we receive the testimony of men, he just says the testimony of God is greater. That's what we call a third class, probably don't have to know that, conditional clause, that word if. And it doesn't really express doubt when it says there in verse 9, if we receive, it actually rather assumes the condition of the fact. What it's actually saying is that you do receive the testimony of men. If you hear of someone's word about anything that it might be, you would generally, unless you had a reason to doubt it, you would receive that testimony of men. I mean, when you think about it, most of what we know is what we have been told or what we have read. And it comes to us by human sources, such as books. It comes to us human sources as articles and biographies, etc. It is the witness of men. This is maybe what we would call just part of general knowledge. And if we, John says here, accept man's testimony... In other words, if you go into the court of law, and if you look at Jewish jurisprudence, usually the testimony of two or three would be affirmed. And on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses, you would receive that. And what John is saying here is how much more 
should we then, if we accept the testimony of men, accept the testimony of God? In other words, you trust others unless there's a reason to doubt them. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, pay bills online? (laughs) How many of you write checks? How many of you buy tickets to events? Listen, you trust people, I would probably think, every single week of your life. And what John is saying here now, how much more then would you clearly receive the testimony of God? Listen, God never errs. You can believe God. His testimony, John says, is utterly true. Now now look back at the text in verse 9. It says, if you receive the testimony of men... Then he uses this little phrase, the testimony of God is greater. You might ask, well, what's the testimony of God? Well, I certainly think as we're right here in the context, it's the spirit, it's the water, and it's the blood that testify to the person of Jesus Christ. These three witnesses form a single divine testimony to Jesus Christ, which God has given to us. In fact, look back at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Why? For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. In other words, God himself has gone on record as bearing witness to his son. I mean, this is a settled fact of reality. God himself testified in the Old Testament through the prophets concerning the coming Messiah. God himself testified at the baptism of Jesus Christ, a voice came out and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus Christ was transfigured before a few of the disciples, that voice was heard, this is my beloved son. In John chapter 12, when he came into the triumphal entry, there that voice came out again, this is my son. So here what John is saying is you have, as you place your faith in Christ, three divine testimonies. He comes by water. He comes by blood. He's secondly testified and given testimony by the Spirit. But now thirdly here is the divine testimony of God himself. Somebody said that the greatest insult that we can offer to anyone is to say that I don't believe you. Or for someone to say to another, I cannot trust you. And yet the truth is, beloved, millions daily offer that insult to God, accepting man's testimony every week of their life while they reject God's own testimony regarding his son. Listen, the Bible confronts you. It confronts a world with the greatest information that's ever been given to man. And it's true. And see, what the testimony of God does is it divides men into two categories. It divides you into belief or unbelief. Look down at the scripture in verse 10. It says there, whoever believes in the Son of God 
has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So here as you fan out thirdly from the testimony of God, there's two categories. One is believing and one is unbelieving. Those who believe, look again at verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God, there is a positive response. And always in the book of 1 John, whoever believes, you say, what tense is it put in? It's, of course, the present tense. Never does the Scripture ever go back to a time where you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed on the dotted line. Believing usually in this context is put in the present tense. So whoever in this room, in this room, right? Because this is the word of God to you. You may be hearing me, but this is the word of God. Whoever in this room believes, whoever in this room is believing, in other words, that's not just something that you throw out. It literally means that the one in this room who has personally committed himself to Jesus Christ, the, the thought here is it is a continuous personal faith concerning the person of Christ. In fact, look at it again. I don't want to be too picky. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes, watch this, in the Son of God. So I want to say very clearly to you, the object, the object of saving faith is not a creed. It is not a church. It is not a pastor. It is not a set of rituals. It is not a set of ceremonies. Jesus Christ, amen, is the object of saving faith. Look at it again. Whoever believes in the Son of God, here John says, has the testimony in himself. Now, just for a moment, look at that phrase, has the testimony in himself. Internally is the thought. In other words, if you place and trust and put your faith in Christ, you have the internal, is the best way to say it, subjective witness of the Son of God in your heart. So how do, you, how do you explain that? Look back. Do you remember at chapter 4 in verse 13? Go back there. Remember John just says there, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. You say, how, John? Because, 4.13, he has given us, it says, of his spirit. He gave us his spirit. This is similar with uh, 2 Corinthians 1.22 where it says that God has put his seal, here's what it says, on us, it says there, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what is this testimony in himself? It is known as the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. So, well, Scott, unpack that a little bit more. Listen, when you become born again, When you have new life in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God himself bears witness as to the truthfulness 
of the person of Jesus Christ in your hearts. So that when you come to Christ, what used to not become, was not clear, is now clear. You say, well, how is it? Well, I, you say, I embrace the truth. You say, well, listen, when you embrace the truth, and when you became born again, God placed his spirit inside of you. And you have now, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. You say, well, how does that work? Look back over at Romans just for a second. Maybe Scott had touched on this. Look at Romans chapter 8 for one moment. Romans chapter 8, where it's talking about their life in the Spirit. And it says very clearly there in 8.15 of Romans, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now watch this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And so listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have that testimony in yourself. You might even say, well, Scott, well, what does that mean to you? All I know is when I move in my Christian life, I embrace Christ. When I see the truth of Christ, I love Christ. And when I read the truths of Christ, I want to obey Christ. When I see those truths and when I, when I preach and when I teach, I recognize those truths well up out of me as they would in you. And when you've trusted Jesus Christ and when you've given your life to him, God gives you his spirit and you have that testimony in your heart. The spirit, verse 16, bears witness with our human spirit that we are the children of God. Look over just for a moment at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. It's that great statement there that Paul makes to the church at Galatia. Does he not say something very, very similar there? when he's talking about the work of Christ. And it says, it says in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That he sent the spirit of God into our hearts so that we recognize who he is. Here's what John's saying. The external objective witness, if you will, in history is now placed alongside our inner subjective witness in our heart through the Holy Spirit. And so here this testimony of God leads some, as you turn back to 1 John, those who believe in the Son. But watch this in verse 10. Whoever, here's the second category, does not believe, it says there, God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So I take you from those believing here within that third category to those unbelieving. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Listen, it's this clear. To reject his son is to deny the very truthfulness of God. And what John is saying is that man does not have the freedom to take or leave this truth. God, young people in here this morning, high schooler, college student, has spoken clearly. 
he has spoken crystal clearly, if that's a word. In other words, it's not vague here what he thinks about his son. What he has said about his son must be believed. And if someone, it's this clear, refuses the testimony of God regarding his son, it is though that one is calling God a liar. A liar. You say, well, Scott, how does one call God a liar? Here's here's how. Simply through one thing. Simply through unbelief. Through unbelief. You say, well, they didn't know. No, 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 they know. You're talking to people. You're trying to reason to people apologetically. It's unbelief. It's not that it's not understood. It is understood. And he's revealed himself in his son. And when you do not believe God, you've made him a liar through unbelief. I think Stott got it right when he said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. That's good. You say, I feel so sorry for their unbelief. Well, listen, they're choosing unbelief. It is an intentional refusal to believe God's testimony about his son. You say, well, why is that? Look on. Look at the end of verse 9, or actually in verse 10. He says, for this is the testimony in verse 9 that God has born concerning his son. But verse 10 says, you've made God to be a liar because, last phrase of 10, he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You call God a liar because you've not believed what he said about his son. You say, well, what did he say about his son? I don't think it could be any clearer. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony at the water. And then when you get in this crucifixion and supernatural darkness falls on the ground and the rocks split and the graves are opened and then the centurion standing at the foot of the cross said, this is the Son of God. And then the Spirit of God is there at the baptism testifying as to the Son. And so now you've made God to be a liar, verse 10, because this is the testimony that God gave us regarding his son. Octavius Winslow, the Puritan, said this. I don't know if I mean it for anybody else who's in here, but in here. Throughout eternity, Winslow said, the lost soul will testify to this truth. What truth? This. God is holy. I was a sinner. I rejected his salvation. I turned my back upon the gospel. I despised his son. I hated God himself. I lived in my sins. I loved my sins. I died in my sins. And now I am lost to all eternity. And God is righteous in my condemnation. End of quote. Wow. Listen, to reject the son is to disbelieve the father's testimony regarding his son. It is to call God a liar. You say, well, I haven't called God a liar. No, you don't have to call him a liar. Just live in your unbelief. I mean, that's just a, 
I don't even know how to, I mean, that's just straightforward. Go tell that to somebody in your family today. Ooh. Go, go, go tell somebody that Christology and the person of Christ is very exclusive. God said that Jesus is the only way. So here, man cannot say he has faith in God and at the same time reject his son. You know, and then you know what John does? He comes right back to the blessings that are granted to the believer regarding the testimony of God. Look at verse 11. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. What a precious Scripture, one of the most magnificent statements in all of the Scripture. This is the testimony that God gave us, and it's eternal life. Let me just note a few things. Number one, we've been given a divine gift, right? We've been given a divine gift. You say, how so? Look at verse 11 again. This is the testimony that God gave us. It's a divine gift. He is the author of our salvation. But secondly, would you note that it's an everlasting gift, or at least a lasting gift. We can say an everlasting gift because in verse 11 it says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. You have a gift that will never, ever, 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 ever wear out. You've been given a gift called eternal life that will never go out of style. You've been given a gift called eternal life that will never break. You've been given a gift that can never be lost. And eternal life, as you know, in in the Scripture, not only speaks of the duration of life, but it speaks of the present possession now of the believer. In fact, go back to 1 John chapter 1. Do you remember? This is not the first time we've seen this term. Remember in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2, there clearly it says, that which we have seen, John talking, actually back up to verse 2, the life was made manifest. John says, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you, here it is, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So just his very name, Jesus Christ, is the source of divine life. Look back over to 1 John chapter 5. Go to the end of the chapter in verse 20. He says, and we know, does John say, that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true. Who's that? In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is given to us, but life itself is bound up in Christ and Christ extends that to us. Look back at 1 John 2 in verse 25. Did he not use a similar phrase there? When he says in 2.24, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What a gracious promise. You think of that scripture you know so well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life or have eternal life. 
John here, the same writer in his gospel, said in 336, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Listen, I can make it this simple. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus, his humanity, Christ, the fact that he's the Messiah, he is the son of God, he's humanity and deity, he's the God-man. If you place your faith in him, you have eternal life. And watch this. This gift is not only given to us by God, if you will, as we've already said. Secondly, it's an everlasting gift. But thirdly, would you just note this? It's a personal gift. You say, well, how so? It's a personal gift. Look at verse verse 11. It says, this is the testimony, I just say this, that God gave us. He gave to us. He gave to you. Can you grasp that? To each of us in Christ this morning, he gave you that gift. I think of Paul. You remember when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And you remember his last line? He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved what? Me and gave himself for me. That's true of you if you've trusted Christ. In fact, look at the end of verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and be so clear here. This life is in his what? Son. That's pretty exclusive, right? It's in Christ alone. This is theological exclusivism, if you will, okay? And I'm thinking of John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I think Spurgeon said it well. He said, depend upon it, my hearer. You will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. And so we have this life. And so look how he finishes in verse 12. Whoever, and this is said to encourage you, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And again, it's put in the present tense. Whoever has the Son, marking the possession of this life, even now as a present reality, has life. And conversely, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Listen, it's so clear. Eternal life can be found in no one else. There is no other name given in heaven whereby men may be saved. Listen, in a politically and religiously correct world in which we live, we at Grace Church of the Valley boldly and unashamedly preach Jesus Christ as the only hope for eternal life. Amen? That's the message. Tozer put it this way. He said that Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. Tozer said he is the what? The only way. So beloved, here is God's testimony of his own dear son. And the purpose of this gospel is that you may believe. 
Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the what? The life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus, of course, finished that and said, do you believe this? I want you to know I believe that. Jesus said in John six forty, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Look to the Son. Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John six forty seven, He said, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In fact, if you go all the way back to the end of John, you remember when He said, I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. Listen, life is only bound up in Christ. And that's not just eternal life. (laughs) That's just life here and now. And as you're out in our community, listen, look into the faces of people, and you'll see hardness there apart from Christ. Listen, he's the only one that gives life now. He's the only one that gives eternal life and the life to come. So why did John give us this little section on the testimony of God? Well, just look at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. He wants you to know that. Listen, beloved. The Word became flesh. The Son of God became man. The Lord of all became a servant of all. The righteous one was made sin. The eternal one tasted death. The risen one now lives in men. And the seated one is coming again. And I pray that we'd be found faithful. Amen.